as he was praying unto the Father. He says, this is life eternal, that they should know thee, the only true God, and him whom thou hast sent, even Jesus Christ. Jesus speaks about eternal life as knowing God and knowing himself, our knowing him. And such knowledge certainly must involve God's greatness. This morning I'd like for us to think about three areas of God's greatness. We think about his creative power, his all-sufficient grace, and his redemptive and transformable power. Now there are people who don't believe in the God we believe in. One man will hold up a dollar bill and he says, this is, a do- this is the God that I worship and I serve. Another will hold up his uh, glass of beer and say, this is the God that I worship and I serve. But the believer looks upon God and he says that God is so great that the heavens cannot contain him and so small that he dwells in my heart. We're talking about a great, powerful, personal God with whom we can have a personal relationship and should have. It sustains us day by day as we pray without ceasing. We're praying to God. Well, let's look first at his creative power. When we turn to Genesis 1 and 1, right in the very beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Six days God used to create the whole universe. Now, it didn't take him 24 hours each day to bring into existence the various things as he created them. Like on the first day, let there be light. It didn't take him 24 hours to say that. Hebrews 11 and 3 says that by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. And that the things that are seen have not been made out of the things that appear. God did not just take material that was already available and refurbish it. Remake it into the universe that we have today. It was out of nothing and God just spoke. Let there be. And in six successive days, he brought into existence everything that we can see about us. We're talking about God's greatness. We're living in a a generation of much space travel and exploration. And it's brought to our attention more the vastness of God's creation and of his greatness. Though man has gone to the moon, man will never be able to go beyond our own solar system. And we can appreciate that because of the limitations of man, because of the vastness of the creation, because of the distance involved. You may remember hearing a TV or radio announcer saying after, well, this was on July the 20th, 1969, when Armstrong and Aldrin were the first men to put the foot on the moon, 
We were watching it on television in Arkansas. And our oldest son's birthday was the 21st, and he was just hoping that they wouldn't get there until the 21st. But they landed on the 20th, just a few hours before his birthday. But the radio or the television announcer said this, and now the moon. But soon the galaxy, notice, but soon the galaxy, and then distant galaxies, and then the whole universe. Well, we think he just got a little bit carried away. He'd been watching too much of Flash Gordon, or maybe Star Trek. I don't know if Star Trek had started back in the 69 or not. But when we consider God's creation, that's not possible. Our own uh, solar system consists of a sun, our sun, and nine planets. Now, if man, well, it took Apollo 11 four days to go from the earth to the moon. If Apollo 11, or a man could travel at the rate or the speed of light, which is about 186,000 miles a second. It would take man about eight minutes to go from the earth to the sun. We're talking about God's greatness, the vastness of his creation. In fact, Apollo 11 could have gone from the earth to the moon in less than two seconds if they could have traveled at the speed of light. Now, <clears throat> how long would it take to go to the Milky Way? And this is still in our own galaxy. You know, we look up there in a beautiful uh, night and we see the, the, the seating, we call it, of our galaxy, the Milky Way. This is in our own galaxy. Well, if a man could travel at the speed of light, it would take him 150,000 years to get there. What did they say? And now the moon, but soon the galaxy? And that's traveling at the speed of light. We have at least one billion suns or stars in our own galaxy. And we're told that there are over 100,000 galaxies like our own. Well, now, we go to the moon, and then we go to uh, the Milky Way. And then we go to the nearest galaxy. Beyond that, how long does that take? Well, going at the speed of light, it's going to take about five million years. I'm not just borrowing something from the evolutionists who talk about, you know, lengths of time. I'm talking about the science, God's laws of nature that man has discovered. When we think about David... There upon the Judean hills, looking after his father's flock at night, looking up into the heavens, and saying, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man? That thou art mindful of him, or the son of man, that thou visitest him. The vastness and then the minuteness of man, just, uh, you know, it's hard to consider together when I consider thy heavens what is man well of course man is the only thing of God's 
creation that's made in his image? That's the answer, is it not? David said in Psalm 19 and 1, that was Psalm 8, 3 and 4, the heavens declare the glory of God, the power of God, and the firmament, still talking about the heavens, showeth forth his handiwork. This is anthropomorphic language. The moon and the stars, you know, that you did with your fingers, your hand, your handiwork. That's the way the psalmist put it. Let me read a few verses from Isaiah 40. Isaiah is trying to to compare God with something. And again, we have anthropomorphic language. A language that gives man sort of a, a frame of reference as we're th- trying to think about God. And he's infinite. And we're so finite. Beginning Isaiah 40 at verse 12. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. Again, we're thinking of God with a hand. And he's taking all of the oceans, all of the seas, all the lakes, all the rivers, all the water that he created and measured in the hollow of his hand. It has to be a pretty good sized hand. And meted out heaven with a span. Well, a span is from what? Your thumb over to your finger, little fingertip. That's the span. And so God puts his hand, he puts his thumb over here at the edge of this creation that he brought into being. And then he just puts his little finger over at the other edge, and that's how he measures his creation. It takes five million years going at the speed of light for man to go from the earth just to the next galaxy. And God can just measure the vastness of his creation. We're talking about God's creative power and how big and great God is. Also, he comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, all of the dirt, and he weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. Who hath directed the spirit of Jehovah or being his counselor hath taught him? With whom took he counsel, and who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed to him the way of understanding? Nobody. Verse 15. Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket, and are accounted as a small dust of the balance. And we talk about, uh, well, that's just a drop in a bucket. God says... Isaiah speaking, that all of the nations are no more than a drop in the bucket. No more than the dust on the scales, the balance scales. When I was a boy, I had to work, had to work around the variety store my dad had, doing this and that. But one of my most favorite tasks was waiting on somebody at the candy counter because I couldn't resist the temptations of the candy there. You know, we had a whole bunch of bins. And you'd have this kind here and this kind here and this kind. And they wouldn't packaged up like they are today when you go to Walmart or Kmart or wherever in a, in a package. And they'd come in and say, well, I'd like a pound of that or I'd like a half a pound of that or a fourth a pound. The kids would come in, I'd like a penny of that and a penny of that. And we have a scoop. We'd scoop it out. You know, wouldn't touch it with our hands. Put it on the scale. 
Well, I don't ever remember seeing any dust, even though this was Oklahoma, on the scales. But Isaiah is saying that the dust on the scales, it's almost invisible. The nations are no more than that in God's sight. In comparison with God, a drop in the bucket, the dust on the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing. Japan is an island or some islands. Hawaii, the British Isles, Madagascar, uh, Sri Lanka. Go all the way around, you'll find a bunch of these islands. God just picks them up. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beast thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. Not to God, it's not sufficient. All the nations are as accounted as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in vanity. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare unto him? Well, Isaiah did a better job than I could ever begin. There is just no comparison. We're thinking about God's creative power. Let's look at God's all-sufficient grace. We think about grace, we think about favor. God has favored us. He continues to favor us, and he'll continue in the future. But it's unmerited favor. If man could live his whole life just to please God, he could never earn salvation. That salvation is a matter of grace, unearned favor from God. But man hasn't striven always to please God. Man has turned his back upon God. Man has rebelled against God. He's cursed God. And yet, God in his all-sufficient grace still seeks to save man. Jesus said the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Each of us before turning to God for salvation defied Him by doing our own will, did we not? And yet Hebrews 2 and 9 says that by the grace of God Christ tasted of death for every man. It's His grace. And so we sing, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. God sent his son to die for us. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, Him who knew no sin... God made to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God through him. God's greatness is seen in his all-sufficient grace. Brother Lewis Hale, preaches in Oklahoma City, wrote an article recently entitled it Two Fatal Extremes. And it begins by speaking about Jeffrey Dahmer. 
he's the man who was convicted and confessed of having slain a number of boys. And I won't mention other things, but uh, surely you've seen about him in the news. And just only recently, within the last month, he was killed by a fellow inmate in the penitentiary. For all of those crimes, he was given, I guess, a life sentence. But it's about him, partially, Brother Hale writes. He said, Jeffrey Dahmer has made the news again. His death brought rejoicing to some, sadness to others. When justice is legally meted out, a society will survive it, even be stronger for it. We need to respect law and order. When individuals take it on themselves to deliberately and violently take the lives of others, it destroys law and order. There were many crimes punishable by death under the law of Moses given by God. It was Christ who said, those taking the sword shall die by the sword. And in Noah's day, God said, Whoso sheddeth blood by man, shall his blood be shed. I'm glad Jeffrey Dahmer lived long enough to repent. None of us is competent to judge the sincerity of his remorse and repentance. But if he truly obeyed the gospel as it appears he did, his salvation is as secure as that of anyone else. And to to deny that anyone can turn to God and be washed in the blood of Jesus is to belittle the sacrifice of the Son of God. It would be saying his blood is not enough. His sacrifice was not great enough. It would be blasphemy. We tend to be extreme. I'm continuing with Brother Hale's remarks. Many people regard moderation as a sign of weakness rather than strength. We think many people are good enough to be saved because they're good. Not true. Many would deny salvation to others because their iniquity is so great, their crime so heinous. Not true. None is so good as to be saved without the blood, and none is so bad that he cannot be saved by the blood. Why would we say of anyone, I hope to God he goes to hell? Why not rather pray that he will be brought to repentance? Do we really believe that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God? Do we really believe that where sin did abound, grace did much more abound? Here's a kindly grandmother whose very touch speaks love, who soothes every hurt of a child, who makes her home a bit of heaven for all who enter, who would never dishonor her husband, nor lie, nor steal, but rather do good to all she meets. It is distressing to think she is lost unless she obeys the gospel, but it is so. We all need to be saved, and all can be saved.
We're talking about God's all-sufficient grace. But hurriedly, let's turn to God's redemptive power. God has the power to redeem every sinner who ever lived from every sin ever committed. And this redemptive power is in the blood, the sacrifice, the atonement of his son Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9 and 15 speaks about how the power of that blood goes all the way back before the cross and forward after the cross to redeem and to save every individual from his sins. We're talking about redemptive power. Power to not only redeem but to transform the vilest sinner. One preacher advertises the story of his life as from the gambling den to the pulpit. But greater changes than that took place in the first century. Take the Apostle Paul. He was a persecutor and according to his own words, a murderer. His life story and his conversion, we might put a title on like this. From the persecuting Paul to the penitent preaching apostle because of the redemptive and transforming power that is God's. In Matthew 21, verse 31 and 32, Jesus speaks about the harlots, the tax collectors, becoming believers in him. Before the Jewish leaders, He says, they will enter into the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6 tells us about the church in the first century, the one in Corinth. It was composed of people who before this redeeming power came their way were fornicators and idolaters and adulterers and homosexuals. They were drunkards and thieves and covetous and revilers and extortioners, but such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Those changes took place because God changed them. A young man broke his mother's heart, wrecked his wife's life. He'd get a job. But he wouldn't keep it very long. He'd soon lose it because of his drinking and his gambling. His family helped him many times, but he'd always drift back into his old sinful life. One day he said to a Christian friend, I would like to go to South America and start life all over again. And the friend very wisely said, the first person you would meet down there would be your old self. All the old habits, the old sins would be there with you. No outward condition. No new environment can help you. There is only one way that you can win this victory, and that is in Jesus Christ. You must be born again. When Jesus said, except one be born of water and of the Spirit, he's not just talking about baptism. He's talking about a life that can be changed as a new birth, a transformation 
Maybe we put too much emphasis on baptism, but I don't see how we can because of all the false teaching and the need to be baptized. What we need to do is to also emphasize the need of transformation because baptism by itself will not do it. God has the power, the redemptive and transforming power to change people's lives. Paul said, I've been crucified. It's no longer I that liveth. Christ lives in me. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If any man is in Christ Jesus, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, they have become new. We're talking about a new you and a new me. In Christ Jesus, Galatians 3, 27 tells us, we're baptized into Christ. That's where we become a new creature. And because he's new, all things become new. At baptism, one receives new ears to listen to the word preached. New eyes to look upon the creation of God. New enthusiasm to carry out his responsibilities. New attitudes to confront our difficulties. New desire that hungers and thirsts after righteousness. At baptism, we're given new feet to walk in holiness. New knees to kneel in prayer before God. New lips to worship and glorify God. A new tongue to praise and to magnify God. A new heart to express love toward others. A new mind to contemplate holy things. A new hope to eagerly await the second coming of Christ. God is a great God. People believed that an all-powerful God loved them, died for them, offered them the things that they needed and wanted. And they were willing to change their lives to please God. The good news was such good news, it had the power to make them want to leave their sins and live a sacrificial life for God. God made man. The devil unmade him. But God can remake him. He has the power. If you're not a child of God, would you come to him this morning? If you have any need from God, would you come as together we stand and sing?